0: Good morning, I hope you're doing well. Today we begin a new series for Easter entitled, Look Again, A New Perspective on Easter. That being said, over the next couple of weeks, what I hope we can do is during this sermon series, we can basically lay aside the crises we're dealing with and really focus on those things that supersede uh, everything that this world can throw at us. And so I can't think of a better subject than to discuss the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. And of course, many of you know, as I do, that that does supersede anything that we deal with in this world. As a way of introduction, I'd like to start with this idea. The story that surrounds Easter is one of the most recognized dramas of all time. Yet there are many different observations of the story that many do not consider, including observations concerning the cross that can give us a new perspective on the celebration of Easter. Now, as a pastor, someone who's spoken on Easter, or the subject of Easter, for many years now, sometimes it's a little difficult to take a very familiar subject and, and bring a fresh perspective to it—a new perspective—and and that is a challenge for many of us who preach on the subject quite often, at least once a year. But I think I have found a way to do this, and and so I'll invite you to turn to Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two. Now. Just as John chapter 1 appears to be the background story of Matthew and Luke's Christmas story, Philippians chapter 2 appears to be the background story of all the gospel accounts of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And so that's where I really want us to begin as we look into this series. Now, I want you to imagine this. Think about the big picture of what is really going on with what brings us to the cross. First of all, you have that God created the world and the cosmos. And He said, basically, it was good. Then He created man and He said, very good. It's very good. And then the way I get, the way I see that is almost like God created all these things, including man, and He takes a step back and He admires His masterpiece. But then the perfect masterpiece becomes flawed. Of course, we know the story. Sin enters the world. What was perfect became damaged. And from his perspective, it could only be restored by the artist himself. And that's where we pick up the story in Philippians chapter 2. So that being said, let me say this. The first thing I want to look at is this idea that we find in Scripture of the equality of Jesus the equality of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2 makes it very clear that Jesus is deity. He is God Himself. All that God is, Jesus was and is and evermore shall be. We find this, of course, in Philippians 2. Look at verse 5. It says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God. Look at that phrase, being in the form of God. It literally means His inner nature is deity, while He took on the appearance as a man. Notice it does not say He became God or deity. He existed prior to the coming here to earth, the the whole Christmas narrative. And so we know that Jesus, when we talk about His beginning, he, He predates everything. There is no beginning. There is no ending with Jesus, just as God. And so he's basically saying that deity basically enters into the world as a man. And then the second thing we can pull from this is that he is equal with God. Now, this does not mean that Jesus was God-like, but God-same. Look at verse 6 again. He says, Who being in the form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God. Now, this thought, Highly offended the religious people of Jesus' day. They they would, they basically declared that Jesus was speaking blasphemy when he said things like, I and my Father are one. And basically what he was saying is basically saying, when you see the Father, you see me. And when you see me, you see the Father. He was equating himself as God himself. And so he's basically saying that Jesus is saying in these passages that offended the religious crowd, that He and God were the same. Now, that leads us to this next point that we find here in Philippians chapter 2. We see the emptying of Jesus. Now, an all-powerful and sovereign God cannot be humbled, but can humble Himself. If you look at uh, the, the word humiliation in the dictionary, one of the definitions basically means forced embarrassment, which seems to carry the idea of being humbled forcibly. But that word can also mean for one to lower themselves. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He left heaven and came to the earth to handle our greatest need. He came to restore the masterpiece that God originally began when He created this world. And He came to restore that masterpiece, that, that perfection here on earth, through what will become His crucifixion. Now, verse 7 tells us how and why Jesus emptied Himself. Look at verse 7. He says... "But." but made himself, this is Jesus, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. It literally means he became one of us. He became a man to identify with imperfect, fallen, sinful humanity. Now, he became a man, yet he was still God. In John chapter 1, we read this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh, that's Jesus, and He dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as the only begotten of the the Father, full of grace and truth. Basically, what this is telling us is that Jesus was the God-man. It meant that He got hungry, yet He was the bread of life. He got thirsty, and yet He was the living water. When you think about it, it kind of blows our mind that deity can take the form of human flesh. And that's what he did. He wrapped himself in flesh. Again, what was the purpose? To restore us into the likeness of his of of who God is in his Son. And so we read in verse 7, look what it says, but made himself of no reputation. It literally means, some of your translations will say this, that he emptied himself. The point is that Jesus humbled Himself and became a man on our behalf. It's the idea that the sinless reached out to the sinner, which leads us to the next point. Probably one of the most fascinating points we find in Scripture, that the God-man, Jesus, came to serve man. Think about it. As deity, Jesus is worthy to be served, yet... He became not just a man, but a servant of man. Look at verse seven again. But made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself. Some believe of his uh, of some of his deity, his ability as deity. And then it says, taking the form of a bond servant. It's the whole idea of he's he's sold out to to serving man at that time in his, uh, when he appeared here in the world. Now, the way this is written. It is in what is called the active voice, which means he was not forced to do this. He chose to do this. It was not done to him or it would be written in the passive voice. So what this means is that Jesus intentionally came to this world to serve man by providing for his greatest need, his greatest need, and that being salvation. Next, he identified with man. And that's really the key to everything we're talking about this morning, from the baptism to this message to the communion that will come later. It's that whole idea of identification. But notice what we're about to figure out or find here in in Philippians is that he first came to identify with us. So look at verse 7, the latter part. It says, "...and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in an appearance as a man." It's the whole idea of identification. Now, these words used in the proper context means that Jesus identified with man in the likeness of appearance, but not in his sinfulness. Now, here's where good theology begins. Jesus was not born in sin as we are. Neither did he acquire a sin nature as Adam did. If he did, he could not have died or be a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That's, that was what God was after. There had to be the perfect sacrifice. He was that. That's the reason He came. So Jesus not only identified with man in man's likeness or appearance, He also identified with man and man's greatest need by the fact that He came as Savior. He was the one that was coming to restore the masterpiece. The masterpiece. Next we find that He died for man. And the first thing we see that in in His crucifixion is His humility. Look at verse 8. It says, And being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself. This seems to imply that in God's economy, the payment for sin must be the sacrifice and death of a man. And in this case, it was the God-man. Now, to complete this thought, Where we have two natures, flesh and spirit, it's important to note that Jesus had two natures, one that was divine and one that was human. These verses seem to imply that the forgiveness of man could have only been made possible by a God-man. And that's what Jesus was. So, the emptying that we find, he, He emptied Himself, led to the humility which led to the obedience. Look at verse 8 again. And being found in His appearance as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death. To the point of death. Jesus surrendered to the plan of His Father. What was necessary? What was necessary to provide our salvation? to restore the masterpiece for those who trust in Him and that, for that salvation. What we find here is Jesus was obedient to that, to that cause, to what God desired. So the emptying led to the humility, which led to the obedience, which then led to the cross. Look at the latter part of verse 8. It says, Even the death of the cross. His humility, His obedience led Him To the cross. Now, when you think of the cross, if you go back and you study all the ways that executions have been carried out, you'll find that the cross was the most shameful of all executions. Literally, you would have a person hanging on a cross, vulnerable, many times beaten in so many different ways, just as Christ was, and and, in his nakedness, the vulnerability of that person. And we find it there. So when you think about it, from heaven, deity comes as a man to lowly earth, to the depths of execution on the cross, to become a sinless sacrifice for man. This by far is the greatest story of all mankind. The greatest story, which leads us to the idea of the exaltation of Jesus Verses nine through eleven seem to be the victory cry of the crucifixion, which completes the greatest story ever told. Now, in the spirit, the in the spirit world, the way up is the way down. In first Peter five, six it says this, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Verses 9-11 through 11 show how, G- how this played out for Jesus. And the first thing we notice here in verse 9 is the exalter. And it's God Himself. Look at verse 9. Therefore God has also highly exalted Him, Jesus. He exalted Him for the humility, for the obedience, for the, the taking on the cross, for being the perfect sacrifice for us. But from that, the exalt- exaltation of Christ involves both the resurrection and the fact that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father who is in heaven. The right hand of the Father implies honor and authority, which leads us to that. He's not only, he's not only at the right hand, but He's also in a place of authority. And from that authority comes His name. Now, in most all ancient cultures, The name of someone meant something. A a name could show purpose, promise, or position. We find that in Scripture. Uh, The name Daniel in Hebrew means God is my judge. Uh, The name Ruth in Hebrew means companion. But by far, the greatest is this. Jesus' name in Hebrew means Savior. The the, the one that came to take care of our greatest need. Look at what it says in verse 9 again. Therefore, God has also highly exalted Him and given Him the name which is above every name. Look at that phrase again, above every name. It literally means there is not another name you can give another that means more than this name. It supersedes any other name. There is no other name that even comes close, but it does not end here. The Bible also says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, nor is there any nor is there salvation in any other in any other name except Jesus for which for there is no under no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved it's the only name that brings our salvation it's the only name that brings perfection back to the masterpiece that we read in the early parts of the Bible, so This name is one of honor and authority. It's a name of exalted supremacy. It is a name that if we're really honest and know anything about Scripture, that is our only hope. Now, not only do we find the exaltation of Jesus in that form, but we also find the acknowledgement here. And from this, in this case, we see a universal acknowledgement. It's amazing how the name of Jesus is flippantly used in our culture. It, it can even be used in a form of profanity. It can be used in so many different ways and it's amazing how we take the, the most honored name that the world's ever heard and we make a mockery out of, it, out of it sometimes. And yet, here's what we find about that name. Look at verse 10. He says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The first thing we see here is the idea of bowing. It's not just some proper protocol. It is a sincere act of reverence and submission. Reverence and submission that we find will come from three places we find here in the Scripture, from heaven, We'll even see it from from the earth. And we'll see it from under the earth. All all those things who have ever been created will bow at the name of Jesus. The greatest name ever will bow at the name of Jesus. Not just bow, but also confess. It literally means to come together to agree. That means the most vile of persons who ever have lived, the most rebellious of persons who ever lived, will come and acknowledge Jesus as Lord of all. All will come to that agreement. Now, for those who are saved, He is our Savior. He is our worship. He is our Lord. For the unsaved, He is all-powerful. He is sovereign. He's their judge. He is Lord. For all groups, it will be an admission to His absolute sovereignty, His absolute authority, His absolute rule. When will this happen? Many would say and probably would agree with how I feel about it. That it's at the great white throne judgment. When all will acknowledge Him for who He truly is. Next, we see the purpose of all this. And it's found in the latter part of verse 11. It says, And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Where? To the glory of God the Father. You see, this is a picture of what brings and will bring joy to the heart of God. That all of creation will properly acknowledge who Jesus is and what He has done on our behalf. Lastly, we're going to look at the example of Jesus. In verse 5, if you were to go back, it's interesting, I've kind of flipped the order here, but I think it's important for us to do that. If you look at verse 5 again, it says this, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You see, what he's getting ready to do is set up basically what Christ had done. He's basically saying, what I'm getting ready to tell you, what we've already discussed, let that mind be in you. And guess what? It's also presented as a command. So here in this text, Jesus is modeling the heart that it takes to identify with Him in the salvation He provides. So as I close this sermon, this message, I want you to think about this. Maybe this different, And possibly for you, this new perspective on the Easter story has shown you the humility Jesus encountered for your salvation. Maybe you are seeing it from maybe a different perspective than you heard it from. I know we haven't talked about the beatings and the suffering that Jesus took on on the cross. Really what we're doing is we're looking at something behind the scenes of what we find in the gospel accounts. But maybe for you, something's clicked during in this message. Maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart about this. And really it comes to this question. What is keeping you from identifying with Jesus through His humility and His obedience? You see, the salvation Jesus offers comes by way of the humility and obedience, the very things He modeled on the cross. Think about it. Think about the humility. Think about the obedience. That's what, that is the bridge for not just Him identifying with us, but also us identifying with Him. Therefore, this sermon is all about identification and what it took for Jesus to identify with us, and what it takes for us to identify with Him. The start of our identification with Him is to to basically look at that salvation that He provides for us and accept that salvation. It comes by way of repentance. It comes by way of surrender. It comes by way of humility and obedience that we've seen here Just as Jesus provided that salvation, it's the same way we come to that salvation. It's through the humility and the obedience. But it does come through that identification. He came to identify with us. How do we identify with Him? We come to identify with Him through the salvation that He provides. And then from that, we can show the world that identification. The the idea of baptism. Just like Laura and Ann and Derek and Jennifer uh, you've seen this morning just like they have come to identify with our Lord what they're doing is they're publicly professing their identification in Jesus Christ but not only there we're going to give you an opportunity at the end of this message to also identify with him through communion for those who know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior you have the the ability, In just a moment, to identify with His death, burial, and resurrection through remembering His body and His blood that was shed for you. So really, I want to close this by saying this. Have you come to the point of salvation that Jesus provides for you? Have you turned from your sin? Have you turned to Him by faith? I pray if you haven't, that you will today. That you will just simply just cry out to God and say, You know something? I've tried it my way it doesn't work i'm going to come the way you told me to come through humility through obedience through repentance i'm coming to you would you pray with me father we just come to you now we just thank you for your many blessings we thank you for for the story the behind the scenes story that we found here in your word this morning father in philippians chapter 2 we thank You that, that Lord, we have a, we, we have someone who left heaven, uh, that came to a fallen world, that that was once a masterpiece. And, and Lord, through that salvation, through Him helping us as, as mankind to be restored back to You, that, that we can once again be that masterpiece. Father, I just pray, Lord, that if there's someone that's out there that's hearing this message, that's never prayed to receive You as our Lord and Savior, I pray today would be the day they do that. And Father, we do thank you for the way that you came to this world to identify with us. And you also give us the ability to identify with you. And we thank you for it. We thank you for what you've done.
1: In Jesus' name, amen. You know, as we think about communion this morning, this is not just some mere thing that mere man came up with. This is a God-appointed, God-ordained thing. This opportunity that we have, this special and unique way we have to identify with Christ. You know, as we talked about this morning in Philippians 2, this idea of Jesus humbling Himself, emptying Himself, so that He could identify with us. Because of that, we have the privilege to identify with Christ not only in through communion, through his death, but also through his resurrection, through baptism. And so this morning uh, we're about to take communion and it's pretty cool to think about. Christian read this just a minute ago in 1 Corinthians 11 uh, about communion. I wanna read something else here in 1 Corinthians 11. In verse 23 it says, For I, Paul, received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. Now think about this, this is pretty cool. That communion is something that has been passed down from generation and generation of believers all the way from the last night before Christ was crucified till now. This is something that we've had the privilege to do for all of these generations, over 2,000 years. You know, to say, uh, we, we, we have some things we need to say about communion, that communion, uh, first of all, is not about a certain type of drink and a certain type of wafer. You know, I think sometimes we kind of get in that mindset that it has to be this kind of drink and this kind of food. And that's, that's not what the focus is on, right? Uh, this morning, it's funny, I have animal crackers and some apple juice that I found over at Mother's Morning Out uh, that's just sitting there. It's not really about the type of food. Remember, this is a symbol, an outward expression of an inward reality. Communion is also not about a certain place. A lot of times, most of us have probably done almost all of our communions right here in this building, right here in the worship center or in a church. And the truth of the matter is, it's not really about a place. In fact, you there in your home this morning, are probably doing communion more like the first century church did communion than we would be doing it if we did it here. That's pretty crazy to think about, that all over uh, the first century, all over the world, those first century believers, they weren't in some big mega church. They were in their homes breaking bread and remembering the sacrifice of Christ. And so communion is not about a special type of food. It's not about a special place that we do it. No, it's this idea that we have to identify with Christ. And, and, and Paul tells us this, that this is really what communion's about here in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's now take a moment and remember His sacrifice. Verse 25 continues, It says, In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it. Do in remembrance of me. Verse 26 continues, In the words of Jesus, he says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, whenever you identify with me in this special way, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the privilege that we've had to take this morning. So if you would go ahead and bow your heads and close your eyes. Let's just take a moment to just thank God for his sacrifice this morning. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord. We thank you, God, that we've had this privilege today to identify with you, to watch and celebrate people, identify with you through resurrection, through baptism, Father. But Lord, we also get to identify with you through your death, Lord. We get to celebrate your death and the beauty of your death, Lord. And the real reason for celebration is that your death was only temporary. God, we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that it was a temporary situation. And so, Father, this morning, we come to you in our homes, in our places, uh, with our families, Father, and we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for you coming to earth, emptying yourself, and identifying with us. Father, thank you for the privilege we have to identify with you. So, Lord, help us to remember this. Help us to, to have this moment to thank you and worship you. And Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to follow and serve you, Jesus. You are worthy and you are our king. And Father, you have done it all on our behalf. Jesus, thank you for your love and your sacrifice. In your name we pray. Amen.